Hey, Dave Kittle here on this episode. This is a cross-post episode from Strata Studios' YouTube channel. I have a conversation with Paul Singh. He is the CEO of Strata PT, Strata EMR, and they help practices achieve close to, if not up to 99.9% of reimbursement, which is just crazy. But anyway, this conversation was on their channel on Strata Studios on YouTube. Definitely check it out and subscribe to their channel if you have not already. And in this, we have a good conversation. Paul asked me a whole bunch of questions, grilled me a little bit. I loved it. Also, he gets out of me mistakes to potentially avoid if you're a practice owner looking to sell in the next several months or the next several years. We talk about a whole bunch of other things in regards to the physical therapy industry, uh, what we're looking for at Fieldmaker Group, but ultimately, hopefully valuable to you, the listener, clinic directors, physical therapists, PTs, OTs, as well as practice owners and investors out there. Subscribe to Strata Studios on YouTube if you have not already and do so as well. Subscribe to the Dave Kittle Show on YouTube and now a conversation between Paul Singh and I. I spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious mergers and acquisition specialists around. And now I've decided to take the leap into buying businesses. The real questions are how will I do it? How much of the behind the scenes can we really show? And how can business owners like you maximize their purchase price and build generational wealth? This show is going to give you the answers. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we buy, sell, or merge healthcare businesses and physical therapy practices. I'm Dave Kittle, and this is The Dave Kittle Show. Let's start right from the top. Practice owner starts a, you know, their medical practice. Often at that point, they're probably not thinking about selling later on, but you know, whatever. I guess the big, let me just throw the direct question out there to start. Like, what is the biggest mistake that people make when they want to sell the clinic? Is it something early in the setup of it? Is it something late in your experience? What's the biggest mistake they make when they want to sell the clinic? Yeah, sure. Well, well, first of all, Paul and Thomas, thank you both for having me on uh, Strata Studios here. I really love what you guys are doing. I've been a fan of Strata PT and, and the company for years with Adam and, and Kim Peacock, who have founded it and have uh, known Adam for years. So first of all, I just want to say thank you for having me on. Hopefully this is helpful or or hopefully valuable or insightful to your audience. In terms of practices looking to sell and the biggest challenges or roadblocks or speed bumps or or issues that they come across or that we perceive to be issues, number one is that their business books are messy or they don't have an accountant or a bookkeeper. That's number one. And then we can certainly get into that if you guys have some follow-up questions. But like another challenge after that is like practice owners, if they don't understand the whole process and they start to try to negotiate and lead this whole process on their own instead of a, using a broker or advisor. And we're looking to acquire and partner. We're not brokers or advisors. We can maybe recommend some folks that have been on my show. But the number one thing is the, the messy business books, which usually will turn off a lot of buyers or will result in what you perceive to be a lowball offer, which the buyers might perceive to be a completely fair offer. So what do you, what type of feedback do you guys have for me on that? I'm definitely not advocating for a certain price, you know, high or low. I think that, first of all, I think you're right. I think that an offer, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about whether an offer is high or low. If the seller thinks it's a good deal, that's a good deal, right? And some people sell because they got to get out and some people sell because they want to get out. And, and so anyway, there's no... I don't have any like feedback for you on that, but I think that I come from the tech world and do a lot of angel investing in that world and exit multiples in that industry tend to be 100x, 10 to 100x is kind of normal. And then every once in a while you get sort of like the high flyer that could be 300x, 400x, you know, that sort of thing. But when you get into Main Street restaurants and bars and even medical practices, those multiples drop pretty quickly. 
and I take your point. I think you're right that like one of those fatal early mistakes is not having clean books. You know, what am I actually buying? <laughs> I don't want to buy a mess. And so I guess where I'm going with this though is, is that like, I think it's just interesting for people to hear this because they don't, I don't think people talk about this enough. I, you said something to me on one of the previous shows that at somehow, I don't know if you remember this, but at one point I was like, well, are the books really that bad or something like that? And I think the way you described it to me, and I'm just going to, this is a statement, but maybe a question is like, when we talk about messy books, it's often not like some sort of fraud, right? It's really more like they're co-mingling expenses. So it's like, is that really your work cell phone? Like, I get why you did that. Like, that's, you're, you're nodding. So I think is that when we talk about keeping your books clean, it's less about fraud and more about that, right? Like kind of really having professional business books. Exactly. So it could be as simple as just not having a bookkeeper or uh, not having a legitimate accounting firm produce and execute your P&L statement, your income statement, balance sheet, those types of things. Because as buyers, once we speak to someone, we're looking to review after we sign an NDA, we're looking to review the last three years of their tax returns, and then also the last three years of those financial statements. And if they can't produce those statements, meaning we sign an NDA, and then if they're not able to send those to us in a week or two, that's the first signal as to <laughs> they might arrive and look fairly clean, but it's kind of like, well, what was the delay here? Like if you are serious about partnering or selling some or all of your practice, and some will say that they've spoken to other potential buyers, and I we know that they're asking for the same documents, initial the initial document request. So it's kind of like, well, what's taking so long? So those are the types of things that might signal that they might be a little disorganized or that they are maybe not that serious. So those are some of the things that we kind of look at in terms of like, are the actual books messy? Are the documents not coming from an accounting firm? And maybe they're just, you know, QuickBooks of, of the owner themselves. So there's like an array of things that we've seen there. Yeah. In, like, in your experience, when they get to that point where they're maybe engaging with you to sell, from an emotional standpoint, or why are they trying to sell at that point usually? There's uh, several different reasons that we've seen or heard. COVID took the wind out of a lot of their sales. That's what you know, a lot of practice owners have said that COVID really was either the last nail in the coffin or had really uh, you know, shaken their confidence in, in maintaining a practice and, and serving patients and, and being hopefully profitable. Sometimes it's medical. So sometimes it could be a practice owner that is on disability or has a cardiac issue or has a recent neurological diagnosis or a cancer diagnosis, something like that. So it's medical health and wellness. And the age range has been interesting. So it could be anyone from like someone in their 40s to someone in their 60s or 70s. And typically there's going to be some health involvement. But then on the younger side, the ones that are maybe closer to 40 or 50 years old, those individuals are often saying that they're looking to maybe diversify, take some money off the table, put it into real estate, put it into Vanguard, put it into other vehicles. And they're looking to have a partner that'll take on some of the things that they don't want to do, like the admin, the hiring, the firing the EMR, the, the billing, that type of stuff, the revenue cycle management, all of that. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting because again, coming from in the tech world, if you will, I think that industry has sort of openly talked about these topics. Everybody talks about it. Like it's hard to find a tech-based company these days that doesn't have their books in a row from the beginning because everybody sort of, again, we've been talking about it for 20 plus years. So that industry is just kind of there. And I think it's interesting, your message, I don't think enough people are talking about it. And I think that's, even in our business, we're very similar to you in the sense that like, if somebody signs up to switch over to us, we know pretty quickly in the before that point, 
where they're at from an organizational standpoint. Like we might ask for some of these reports as well when we're vetting whether a client comes on. And if they hit reply right away and you're like, oh man, these guys got it together. And then sometimes you'll see somebody respond back two weeks later. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so busy or whatever. And you're like, yeah, I know you're busy, but like now I'm really worried. What what else is missing? You know, did you make this report <laughs> like this week? How have you been operating for for a couple of years? So like, it's just very similar in that sense. I'm curious, actually, what your thought on this is like, you know, in the tech world, there's a lot of third party services that'll do basic bookkeeping. Like I'm thinking like Bench and some of these services, it'll do that for like a flat rate. It's like, I don't know what they charge these days, but it's like 500 bucks a month or something like that. It's it's way cheaper than hiring like a part time bookkeeper or anything like that. Totally random. Should somebody make that business for medical practices, you think? I'm sure there's some out there. I don't know. I mean, a lot of practices just historically will use a physical in-person bookkeeper or someone that's, you know, in their town or city or something like that. But yeah, there there absolutely should be if there isn't already. Yeah, that's interesting. I'll have to Google that later. That's uh could be an interesting opportunity for somebody because <laughs> clean books would make everybody's lives a lot easier. In terms of like value then, like so I know this is like a really great, you know, it's a hard topic to talk about without a lot of context, but just in the tech world I kind of know what the values are just because I've lived in that world for so long. What evaluations look like in the, you know, the PT world or the medical practice world? Just ballpark. Sure. So ballpark, a practice that has $250 to $300,000 in adjusted EBITDA. So if anyone is watching or listening, basically, whatever is your bottom line, your net profit, and you add back in all of your personal expenses, your gym memberships, your family cell phone plan, mortgage, car, all the things that are your personal items that are on the books, you add those back so you get credit for those. Because if, you know, if Paul or I or anyone else, you know, if someone buys your practice in the next year, those personal items would not be on the books. So you get credit for that. So it shows more profit on your books and more profit that you'd be getting credit for. So call it 250 grand to 300 grand in adjusted EBITDA. So basically net earnings, net profits after these addbacks, those practices, depending on the practice. So it depends on a whole host of reasons. It could be team members, location, parking. I mean, the online reputation, but on average, those types of practices will sell for or be valued at three times to four times that number. So if if a practice is doing like a million dollars in revenue, if it's doing $250,000 in adjusted EBITDA, that practice could potentially be valued at either $750,000 or a million dollars in that range. Most practices, because once we talk about valuation, practice owners will sometimes get offended. They will get surprised. They will get spooked. So if a practice owner that is watching or listening, if they if their practice is doing a million dollars in top line revenue, most of them don't want to or will not sell if the offer is below a million dollars because they're equating revenue to the value of their practice. But the value of their practice is actually you start with your adjusted EBITDA, which you can have an accountant help you with. You can have a financial a broker advisor help you with. On my show, there's plenty of episodes and, and not just me, but other folks talking about this. And then as your net or your adjusted EBITDA number grows, so if that gets to $500,000 in adjusted EBITDA or a million dollars, then your multiple will ascend up the ladder to a higher multiple, to a five, to a six, to a seven, or to an 8x EBITDA. It depends. And obviously... How do you have a, a higher adjusted EBITDA? Typically, it's with more scale. So it's with either more physical therapists, more therapists in general, PTs, OTs, and or more locations. So you have more scale. You're reaching more of your community. So if you have 500 grand in adjusted EBITDA, you might be in the five times range. So 
500 grand times five, that could potentially be the valuation of your practice. However, at any given time, the valuation of your practice is whatever the market is willing to dictate. So that would be what type of buyers like us or big corporate buyers, sometimes they want to overspend to get into a new metro and new location. They might value that practice at five or six or seven times adjusted EBITDA. And we might say, actually, like our ceiling might be four or five X EBITDA. And that might be our final offer. And then maybe we get outbid. And then that's what the market is dictating. So it really just depends. There's been a change, a little bit of a change in multiples throughout COVID. Overall, still pretty healthy. But yeah, but going back to what you said, Paul, like there's definitely a huge difference between Main Street, brick and mortar, service-based businesses in those multiples, which are pretty confined and pretty standard in like call it the three to seven range. And then once they get much bigger, 10 locations, 25 locations, then the multiple ascends from there. But a huge difference from what you're used to with tech multiples. Yeah. And and, and I, again, totally admit they don't need to be the same. I just, the disparity is just fascinating to me. One of the similarities though, is um, I've done a lot of angel investing in the tech world, you know, and all that. And, and so I'll talk to my founders and I'll just say, when it comes to these exits, and I'll say this assertively, but I'm curious how you think about it. What I usually tell these entrepreneurs, in this case, potentially practice owners is, is like, look, there's a difference between getting your company bought versus getting your company sold. That subtle difference in word determines what the outcome is going to be. In other words, if you want to sell the business, be prepared that you're going to be, you're going to end up on the bottom of whatever spectrum you want to be at. Cause I know you want to sell it. On the other hand, you build something that wants to get bought. Like, you know, to your, your point, what you said earlier, like a bigger player comes in, wants to overpay to get into a certain geography or industry or whatever. That's how you get bought. And then you end up at the high end of, you know, your, your bracket. But really, I usually tell founders beyond that is like, let's just understand that you got to understand what you're optimizing for. If you want to optimize for speed, maybe you got to get out of the deal because. God forbid a divorce or death in the family or something. Well, speed matters. You go for the lower end of the, the bracket. If you're optimizing for value or whatever, or, uh, sorry, dollars, it's going to take longer, but you'll get there. But just know what you're optimizing for and you can kind of like trade off speed versus whatever. And then the last thing I always tell people, and I'm curious what you think about all this when I'm done, is like valuation is just one part of the overall term sheet. So I, I like to kind of joke with my founders. I'm like, look, if valuation is all you care about, write it on a piece of paper, slide it across the table. I'll give you any value you want, but I get to choose every other term. And then they're like, wait, 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 (laughs) what does that mean? (laughs) You know, so you're smiling and nodding. So I imagine it's very similar for this industry or is it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've seen a lot of different numbers and and different deals. So let's just say one that we had looked at was a $2.7 million revenue. I'm not going to say where, I'm not going to say who, obviously we're going to keep it all anonymous, but $2.7 $2.7 million in top line revenue. And our valuation was a surprise to the practice owner. And they obviously wanted something much closer to 2.7. And we're, what we do is we show our math. We will put it, we'll, we'll say it over a Zoom call to them with them and their broker. We will put it in an email and or some of the letter of intent. We want to show our math. Like, here's how we got there. We want to show you in the most earnest way possible, hopefully, that it's based in numbers, it's based in financial reality right now. So, like, like, first of all, can we agree on this adjusted EBITDA number? Can we make sure that we agree on, let's go through your ad backs. Like, let's make sure you get credit for all these. Can us, can on the buy side, can we agree with you and your broker or advisor? First of all, is this adjusted EBITDA? Does this make sense? And then from there, then we're like halfway there. And so it's this situation that is always evolving. But anyway, so that the practice with 2.7 and that practice owner wanted something much closer to 2.7. 
And another thing that they don't realize necessarily, unless they're coached or advised by their broker advisor, is that a lot of practice owners, they're trying to get rich or get wealthy off one transaction. And so what they will do, especially if they have a health issue, if they're just trying to get out of the practice, whatever, it maybe depends on their age, but they obviously want as much of the money at the closing date. So they want $2.7 million for this $2.7 million practice. Okay, it might be worth that. It might be. But then they also want 100% cash at close. And the deals historically and across the country, and historically meaning even in the past five and 10 years, before COVID, during COVID, after COVID, the practice owner will not necessarily get 100% cash at close. It might be 60 or 70 or 80% at close. There's been practice owners that have come on my show that have said that they got 80% from a couple of different corporates, 80% at the close, the next 10% in year one to make 90%, and then the final 10% in year two. So that 20% was either an earnout or a seller's note or seller's finance, where the buyers said, here's what we value your practice a little bit lower. The seller, the practice owner is saying, I value it a little bit higher. And oftentimes you can use either an earnout or a seller's finance or seller's notes to bridge the gap between what we believe it's worth and what you believe it's worth. So in that the $2.7 million practice, we were valuing it much closer to 2 million. They wanted 2.7 because they're like, well, I'm doing 2.7 million in revenue. So this is what I want. And so it's like, okay, well, maybe we could bridge the gap here. And we kind of went down the path of potential seller's note or seller finance for the the $600,000-$700,000 gap in terms of valuation. But all of these are creative. There is no right way. All of these depend on the practice. I mean, that's the key, right? Is like, there's just a lot of moving parts here. And I think it really, not to oversimplify, it just comes back to like, what exactly are you optimizing for? Because that, if you know that, then everything else becomes easy. And I think the summary of like how you described that, that example just now is, is that like, profits matter. You can do 2.7 million all day, but if you're barely break even, the buyer will never get their money back on that. I mean, you know that, right? But it's like, that's the part that I think a lot of people don't, you know, think about when they're on the sell side of the transaction. They, you know, they want their cake and they eat it too. And, and I get it. You know, we've all been there. Let me just make a comment about that because I like that. So you said profit. If I'm buying, let's say if Thomas here, if Thomas had a physical therapy practice, if I'm buying Thomas's physical therapy practice, whatever we agree to, that we are buying the cash flow of the practice. The profit is, yes, we're helping patients. Yes, we're being altruistic. We're helping the community. We're providing a service that has no side effects, that is natural healing. I mean, this is like PTOT. This is really great stuff. We're not, you know, we're not selling any like snake oil stuff. But at the same time, it does come down to profit and the cash flow of the practice. So if I was hypothetically buying Thomas's physical therapy practice, whatever it's cash flowing, that he's taking out. So whether it's his salary, his owner draw, owner perks, whatever per year, all of those ad backs, all the, some of his personal items, whatever that number is, we're looking at the practice and we're saying, okay, would you be accepting this type of a deal where that dollar amount, so Thomas is going to get the next three years or the next four years, the next five years of that cash flow in this deal right now. And also you have to look at it from the seller point of view, you got to look at it from the buyer's point of view, which is if we don't do anything at all, if the practice just stays exactly the same, And if we valued it at, let's say that 3X, the three times multiple, it's going to take the buyers three years to recoup their investment of that investment that we just paid to Thomas. So these are the dynamics that practice owners don't really think about. It's like you could keep your practice and continue to grow it maybe five or 10 or whatever percent per year, which is totally fine. Or you have a buyer that comes in like us or another buyer, 
And do you want X amount of those years of that compensation, salary, owners, perks, cash flow, the owner, owner draw, all of that? You get all of that almost at a at a windfall. Maybe you get 80% at close, whatever it might be, or 100%. That's what we're looking at. That is the reality of this type of a deal or most deals. So then Thomas or the seller has got to look at like, okay, do I think this is a fair deal where I get all this money for the next three to five years that I would get anyway if I just maintain owning and running and managing the day-to-day of this practice? Do I want X amount of that now? And then the buyers are doing the same thing, which is, is it worth the three times or the, the three years, the four years, the five years, whatever it might be to make back this money before then we can assuming there's no growth and obviously every buyer wants to come in and grow it, right? So those are the dynamics. When you mentioned profit, Paul, that, that's something that came into my head. I just wanted to share that. No, it's smart. I don't know how to articulate this, but the complexity of all this is what I find the most fascinating because yeah, it can be overwhelming to people. You know, I mean, you've probably talked to people just like I have where they're like, oh, I thought it was easier. I thought like it was Shark Tank, right? We just shake hands and go to commercial, <laughs> you know? But the reality is, is that you can kind of engineer for anything. And it just goes back to like, what exactly are you optimizing for? Because like, for example, what you just described there in terms of like the 80% payout versus the 20% at closing versus 100% at closing, there's also tax implications of that too. Yep, absolutely. I guess, you know, again, like there's no right way to do this, but just, I guess what I'm getting at though is, is that not enough people talk about money in this industry. And I think it's just fascinating that you do. And I think that it's a topic that nobody publicly wants to say, like, put 20 doctors together in a room. I don't care like whether they're PTs or pediatricians. After about two beers or so, when the cameras are off, they're absolutely talking about profitability <laughs> and how they're going to make money. So everybody's thinking it, but nobody's talking about it. And I think that's the most fascinating part about what, what you're doing is we're sort of shining a spotlight on it. Because the other thing I'll just kind of maybe point out, and I'll say this um, again assertively, but you can poke holes in it. The thing that I think people don't realize is, is that the work that's required to grow your practice, to run and grow your practice profitably, is actually the same work that you need to make your practice sellable. And I think that's the part people don't realize. Like, I think that there's this implicit idea in people's head that what you have to do to sell or to make it sellable is somehow different than what it takes to add another practitioner or increase client visits by 10%. Like, it's exactly the same amount of work and nobody seems to think about it that way. Because to your point, that valuation, which we all agree is not the only thing, but if that's what we're talking about for a minute, it's sort of a function of how profitable you are, but also how big the whole thing is. You know, like if we're going to like take the bet, it's almost a better use of capital and your time to go after like a 10 location practice than a one location practice, you know, all other things being equal, of course. So I could kind of dominate this and, and keep pushing you in directions you may not want to go. What am I not asking? Like a minute or two ago, you mentioned the tax implications. I want to circle back on that because practice owners, they want as much of the cash at close. And you said, but there's tax implications on that. And that is a great point. And so if you want that million dollars, 100% cash at close, obviously, that's going to be taxed at a higher rate. It really depends on where you fit in regards to general tax and capital gains tax and all that. But you certainly and this is we cover on other episodes on my show. And I have other people that have come on that are either attorneys or accountants and tax strategists and, and other folks. If you sell for the max value or top dollar, then there are tax implications. You will be taxed at a higher rate typically. And in that example of that 2.7 million, where we said we think it's worth 2 million and maybe we agree to 1.8 or 2 million at the close, and then we agree to 
a $600,000 or a $700,000 seller's note. And sometimes that kicks in in the first year or two, or maybe we say that note doesn't even start for 24 months or something. That significantly could decrease your tax implication, meaning it could allow you to have this deal done where you get a big windfall of cash, which is what you're looking for typically if you're watching or listening. And then you can go put that into real estate. You have, you know, make it your nest egg. You put it somewhere in stocks and bonds or CDs or whatever, wherever you want to put it. And then you would also have those future payments that would be that seller's note or seller's finance. And that would bring down your taxable amount. So that's something to really consider in regards to these deals. All of these potential deals, all the different buyers out there, there are implications to the dollar amount. And like Paul said earlier, not just the price, but the terms. And so the seller's finance or the seller's note, that's part of the terms. So if we say, okay, yeah, we agree to 2.6 million and you wanted 2.7 million, we agree to 2.6 million, but it's 1.8 million paid at the close and then the remainder as a seller's note. And then it's like, what interest rate are we gonna put on that seller's note? And when does that seller's note start? And are these guaranteed or collateralized? Are they unsecured? I mean, there's like so many of these terms and that I'm glad, Paul, that you mentioned that earlier because it's like the tax implications and then it's the terms, not just the price of the deal. Yeah, I've made mistakes in my previous businesses where I thought it was as simple as just a handshake and money rolls into the account. And all of a sudden you're like, wait, where did 50% of that go? Oh, oh, that's the tax prepayment. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> and then you, you start to think like, Oh, that's why, you know, it's like, uh, this is a bad example, but it's like the lottery. It's such a bad example, but it's like the lottery. You know, if you don't look at it, you're like, why do they offer you a lump sum versus paid out over time? Why do they do that? And you're like, that's so dumb. I'd of course take the lump sum. And then if you just get on the wrong side of that transaction one time and you're like, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> like, I'd rather like, you know, figure out how to get 30% of the taxes or, or figure out capital gains treatment and, and figure out what to do with that. So. You know, one of the things we didn't talk about, again, terms being so wild, does the practice's demographic matter or how does that play in? So like, I'm thinking like New York City practice versus rural Missouri athletes as 20% of the clientele versus families being 100% of it. Does that even factor in or how does that factor in when you guys look at deals? So there's a couple things there to unpack. In-network reimbursement is less in New York versus... Iowa or Idaho and some of those other states because they're more rural. In New York City, there's a ton more physical therapy practices. So it's a densely populated and or saturated in regards to the locations of physical therapy practices and those contracts, those in-network contracts with a lot of the major payers. So that's one thing. Another thing would be, but also in New York City, like for us, like we only accept out-of-network insurance. And there's some amount of folks that allow for this type of business model to happen where we're charging, you know, 250 per visit out of pocket or they have out of network benefits because they work for these big companies and big firms and they have great insurance benefits and these companies will have plans offered to employees that have in-network and out-of-network benefits and then there's other places in the country where there are less out-of-network benefits or someone who is not able to pay couple thousand dollar deductible to hit that out-of-network deductible to then have their out-of-network insurance actually cover. So a lot of this depends. I hate to say it depends, but it depends on... So a big corporate that is all in-network, they only want to go and buy in-network practices because that fits their core business model. And they're probably or typically don't buy out-of-network practices or they don't buy cash practices typically. And the demographic 
I talked a little bit more about the payer there, but now if we're talking about condition specific, typically a lot of, you know, most physical therapy, most PTOT practices are going to be mostly ortho, like bone, muscle, tendon injuries. And then there's also the neurological components. So Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, dizziness, vertigo, those types of things. That's in most physical therapy practices. Pediatrics will have a little bit more of a squeeze, a little bit more pressure, because if you have a three-month-old with torticollis, you can't say, oh yeah, hey, Johnny, go over there and start stretching your neck. And, you know, Timmy, go to that, go ride the bike for 10 minutes. And you can't overbook patients. You, you can't have some of those things that are done in an outpatient office where you could potentially be treating multiple patients at the same time if they're orthopedic conditions. So those are some of the things of the demographics that change. And then also like same thing with pelvic floor. So if a therapist is a pelvic floor specialist, that's also pretty much a one-on-one treatment. You are either there in the room doing an exam or treatment, or you're not, and you can't really overbook patients. And there's obviously privacy and, and typically exam rooms instead of an, an open gym setting like orthopedic conditions. All those types of things will factor into the demographics of a practice. And I think some of those specialties are becoming more and more popular. CHT hand specialists in those tables in offices, you can typically treat multiple hand patients at the same time. So some conditions allow for it. Some conditions don't. Yeah. Yeah. And I I feel you too, when you said like, you know, you don't want to say it depends because it always does depend. (laughs) It's like, that's the thing, right? Every business is so different. I don't know if you're gonna have an answer for this, but I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, in the tech world, just in broad strokes, like the broadest strokes possible, the tech world it's not uncommon to have a business that might have like 80% gross margins and maybe 50% net margins. In other words, 50% of the revenue is just straight profit. Like in the tech world, because the cost of software is like a fixed thing, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it's just a way more profitable thing. And anytime in the tech world, you see somebody that's like way off the mark, they're like barely scraping by. You're like, oh, something bigger is under the hood. I don't want to mess with this at all. It's just immediately... Because you're so far outside of the guardrails, it's like there's red flags. You just walk away. Does that exist? Like, I know it depends and all that, but like all things being equal, what is like a target margin or whatever financial term you want to use there? But like, what is the target for everybody? Like, is it 10% EBITDA or is is it 10% like a target? Is it 30? What should it be? Like when you look at practices, like here's a more punchy way to ask the question. If practice owners actually like embraced being a capitalist, (laughs) <laughs> and ran their books clean and all that stuff. What should it look like? What does a healthy practice look like on average? 10% margins, 20, 30, five? What does it look like? 20% would be a target. And obviously there's practices that are outpatient ortho that have a lease or they have a lot more overhead. And those practices, it'll be a little bit more challenging, but they have the scale of like the open operations and an open schedule and all that versus a practice like mine or the other practices like mine. So like a concierge practice where we travel our patients. So whether it's traveling to someone's home, their office, a hotel room for people that are visiting that city, on demand, wherever. Like we've had therapists go into restaurants, boardrooms, law firms, hedge funds, wherever. Like we go to our clients, we can therefore potentially charge more and we have that level of convenience and less overhead. And so that's why those types of practices could be anywhere from 20 to 35% net profit margin. However, a lot of outpatient therapy offices across the country are going to find themselves around 8, 9, 10, 11%. And there's a combination of the fixed expense, the overhead, the rent expense, and then the secondary challenges of the payment reimbursement, 
whether it's fixed contracts, timely payment, that all lags. I mean, you guys mentioned it on other shows here, that all will lag on cash flow. It, it squeezes everything. It provides more pressure. At the same time, maybe that practice is not doing the best job of marketing and getting new patients in. Maybe they are not doing a great job of presenting the plan of care and getting that patient to actually complete the plan of care. So maybe they're dropping off after two or three visits. So there's a whole host of things that could funnel into that. But in general, what I've seen, what some of my board members have seen, like Sturdy McKee and some other folks that coach other practice owners across the country, a lot of them are operating closer to that 10% number, where they certainly could be closer to that 20 or 30% number. Not that it was a trick question. I'm just glad to hear that because it sort of lines up with what I see. It's not uncommon for us to see a practice come in in trouble, single digit margins. And you know, and you can almost instantly look at it from the outside and say, oh, this is more about disorganization and maybe like overpaying on certain things. And more often than not, we can kind of help right side it and get it back up to that 20%. But we can't help anybody that doesn't want to be helped, right? Like in your case, you can't buy from somebody that doesn't want to be bought. But I guess the point is, is like, you should be able to target about a 20% margin on the business. So like, in other words, that person that runs a million dollar practice should be aiming to take 20% of that as profit. And you should not be shy about that because like anything above that tends to make the company even more valuable. <laughs> and the more valuable it is, why would you actually sell it? It's, it's sort of um, counterintuitive, I suppose. But 20%, that's like, I think the the punchy bit there. Okay, so in the tech world, I have a couple rules of thumb, right? In my head, I kind of know like napkins uh, on the back of a napkin. I can say, oh, the, here are the three variables that really matter that tell me that you know what your business is doing. Like in our world, in the tech world, it's like, what does it cost to acquire a customer? What's the lifetime value of that customer? What's your churn rate? You don't have to look that up. You don't even have to know it. But in my mind, I'm like, that's my rule of thumb to assess any business. When you look at a practice, is there something similar where you're like, what are the three things? Like what... I guess, let me ask the question a slightly different way. What do you expect practice owner to know on the first call where they can just recite it off and you're like, yep, they know what they're doing? I mean, right off the bat, you're saying a practice owner calling us. First of all, we're not looking to buy any solo practices. So we want them to have at least two or three physical therapists or PTs or OTs, two or three therapists or more. And then after that, they probably won't get into that, the numbers, unless we've signed a, a mutual NDA, assuming that we have that signed. They'll send us their tax returns or financials. If they ask, like we'll say, like ideally, we're looking for practices that have 200 to 250 grand in adjusted EBITDA or more, because otherwise there just might not be enough meat on the bone or it might be a big turnaround effort. In terms of some of the other metrics that we will eventually ask that are important to us, it's usually because practice owners kind of enter this and they might be a little guarded. They may or may not have a broker advisor. They're not usually going to be offering up these data points that you're asking about. Mm. It's usually us asking for them, or it's us asking for specific reports and things like that. So it could be something as simple. And they won't know some of these. They won't know a lot of these numbers. They will not know a lot of these numbers on the top of their head. Some of them, they should. Like For example, they should know their average number of visits per plan of care. Plan of care meaning an evaluation. So it doesn't matter if it's ortho, neuro, hand, whatever the condition is, they should know the number of visits per plan of care. And that goes to the lifetime value number, which is what you just mentioned, Paul, over in the tech world. So we want to know that if a patient comes in on average, what is the number of visits per plan of care? Because then you kind of back into, well, what is your average reimbursement per visit? And then right there, boom, you know the lifetime value of that patient. And on the further down the road might be us getting into 
the acquisition cost, but typically that's something that they will practice owners will not know because they will do a little bit of marketing. They rely on a lot of word of mouth, but they don't really have a, a grasp on the customer acquisition cost. They're not necessarily using a lot of paid channels. They're not necessarily using a lot of paid ads. Some are, but another metric that we'll eventually want to find out that usually will take a report like it was Strata PT or another EMR company that's going to run a report. But we also want to know things like units per visit per therapist, productivity per therapist. And then also if they have multiple offices, we want to know like they'll give us their financials, but we want to know like what's the profitability in each office. We need these numbers broken down per office, not just like company-wide because company-wide it might look good, but then it's like, oh, actually one or two of these offices are break even. And so that's actually could be alarming. And if that office has another seven years on a lease, but it's breaking even, like, is it just because it opened up recently or like what's going on here? So all of these things we dig into more and more over time. It's interesting to hear you talk about it though, because it's one of those things where like, I'm probably gonna get in trouble for this, but I know we're all not supposed to like judge a book by its cover, but when it comes to business, you know, you kind of, everybody does it, right? It's like somebody shakes your hand and then says something crazy. And it's like, you definitely don't know what you're talking about, you know? And, and, and I guess where I'm going with that is, is that like, one of the things I tell tech founders is, is like, you know, whatever your parents told you when you're growing up, like there's no dumb questions, all that goes out the window when it comes to business. Like you better start Googling this stuff. Like, I think it's important for founders and I think practice owners to Google this stuff before they ever reach out or, or have these conversations. Because what's the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is you kind of know the lingo now and you kind of know what matters and you can kind of build your practice more profitably when you start to think about it financially. And the best case scenario is you don't screw up the meeting because the goal of the first meeting with you, for example, is probably the same as it is in venture capital for me is like the goal of the first meeting is simply to get to the second meeting. <laughs> you know, like we're not, nobody's writing checks. It's not like the movies where, you know, you met somebody at a cocktail party and it was a $3 million deal before the end of the party. It's like, that is not how this works. We're essentially getting married financially, even if we buy the place, you know? So it's just super fascinating. The parallels are just amazing to me. This might be one of the harder questions to ask. I'm curious though, like, is there like a part of this where you're like, there's a certain set of questions that I get more often than not that immediately I will admit I am cynical and I'm like, oh my God, this question again. Because I'm like, you could have Googled this. Does that exist in your world? Like when you, uh, and I'm not trying to make you look bad. I'm just kind of curious. Like what are the, I guess here's the question. Let's say somebody has a great practice. Let's say they've done everything that you've already talked about. They've got a great revenue model, a great profitability, multiple locations. Like it checks every one of the boxes. If all that's true, what are the, like the deal killers for you? You know, like what are the common mistakes that practice owners make that aside from the hard skills and the hard facts, what kills deals outside of like bad business? Sure. And I want it because you were just saying like potentially tough questions. Practice owners watching or listening, there are no questions that you could ask that would make us run for the hills or kill a deal. Let's just say that first. The deal killers are going to be things that are a little, a little more about bad behavior, hiding losses, hiding issues that you know are issues. Like, for example, we previously got pretty far down the line of potentially acquiring our practice. Practice owner was going through an issue in their life and they were not keeping us updated on that quarter or the following quarter's financials. We were trying to keep a pulse on it. And then we were looking to potentially do a deal. Long story short, we found out very close to the process of drafting a purchase agreement. We found out that the previous year's financials, the whole year, the annual number of 
the profit, the profit margin was a negative number. So basically, if your profit is a negative number, your practice is worth zero. We were offering an, a positive number, not even going to get into it. We were offering a number. We found out that there was a loss, a big negative number, meaning that the practice owner took their eye off the ball. They were submitting claims that were getting denied. They were resubmitting claims without making any changes or updates and probably not submitting other claims at all. I know it sounds crazy, but this is what could happen. And these are the things that are deal killers. There's other deal killers if, you know, maybe if you have a lawyer who's too aggressive, that's not a healthcare specialist attorney that maybe does like a buddy attorney who is like a divorce attorney or a, a prosecutor or something that like is trying to kind of moonlight as an M&A attorney. So for us, our law firm is a healthcare specialist law firm. And so all our law firm does is help with assisting their clients in buying or selling healthcare practices, medical, physical therapy, PTOT, whatever. And so there's no question that a practice owner watching or listening, there's no question because this is like an unknown process for them. There's nothing that you could ask that will kill a deal. It's the nefarious behavior, the bad behavior, potential borderline fraud, hiding things, or maybe a difficult lawyer or something like that. So yeah, again, I, I'm just I love, I'm smiling because like the similarities are just amazing to me because I always talk about this idea that the hardest part of doing deals everywhere else isn't the actual deal. It's often the service providers. <laughs> it's the local service provider that probably has a good heart, but is screwing up the deal because they're either being too much of a hard ass or, or unnecessarily like delaying things and stuff like that. So it's just so fascinating to me that the similarities are there. So before I forget to ask also, like, let's talk a little bit about what you're working on. So you've kind of hinted at it, but just so that people hear it directly from you. Can you tell us about that intentionally leaving, leaving it broad, I'd rather them hear it from you. Yeah, sure. So we have a, an investment group, Fieldmaker Group with Sturdy McKee and another gentleman, Marshall Sturman and myself. And we're looking to partner with practices, either buy some or all their practice in the New York and New Jersey area. That's our geographical focus right now. We certainly may be open to practices outside of that geographical area. That really depends on if there's already a clinic director or general manager or someone who would be that's already been there and that would potentially be a person that's competent to manage the day-to-day -day with or without equity, whether they're going to pony up some money and be part of the deal or not, or there's some options there. But that's our focus right now. We're speaking with a bunch of different practice owners at different levels of seriousness. We are looking to speak with practice owners that have outpatient therapy practices, as well as the home model mobile concierge. There's all these acronyms, but it's the therapy that goes to the patient or client and the patient population doesn't really matter. So like here in New York City, my practice concierge pain relief, we go to our patients and clients, about half are geriatric or neurological cases. And then the other half are busy professionals where time's their biggest asset and they typically have an orthopedic issue. So that's an interesting mix for us. And that is pretty consummate to the other general patient demographics in these other target companies and these practice owners that we're speaking with. So hopefully that gives a little bit more insight to what we're doing. Hey, it's Dave Kittle. Are you a healthcare business owner or physical therapy practice owner who is looking to figure out your succession plan or exit strategy? We might be able to help. And in fact, we may be interested in acquiring your practice. If you're interested, you can reach out to me, shoot me an email at dave at concierge pain relief 
com. That's D-A-V-E at C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E, painrelief.com. Or you can call me at any time, 646-781-8884.